Good morning. Welcome to Celebration Church. Let's all stand together as our campuses join us over in Stevens Point and in Appleton this morning. And let's recite together the Apostles' Creed. This is our statement of faith. This is who we are, what we believe at Celebration Church. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the fellowship of believers, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Good to have you with us here this morning again, as well as those over in Stevens Point and Appleton. Glad that you've decided to join with us and worship at Celebration Church as we launch into our new year, 2015. Holy cow, you're getting old, Bob. (laughs) Now, last week, I had a little mini rant, uh, which really nothing about anything. It's just about the new uh, movie about Moses. And I had my little, you know, moment about just the frustrations of the uh, inaccuracies. But it's no big deal. Mine was more of a literary complaint than anything else. I mean, they go to great details to make sure they get Batman right more than they do anything from the Bible. It's not even close. It's just like the Noah movie where giant rock men built the ark. And it's like, oh, seriously. So I have a little rant. Posted it on my Facebook. I've got 110,000 people on my Facebook. Apparently a lot of people who have way too much free time. And, uh, and then you add the Twitter people. So there's a bunch of people. So they're all making comments. And I was getting a kick reading the comments. And you know, but, you know, I, I wasn't saying, you know, boycott the movie or anything. I don't really care. It's not like I really care one way or the other. I don't look to Hollywood to get my direction in life. It was just, just a rant. You know, like, come on, guys. Can't you stay closer to the actual story? So, uh, anyway, but what did kind of strike me is how many Christians posted on this. Oh, man, I'm glad you said that because I, I wasn't sure, you know, what was really true or not. And I thought it was really sad because, uh, you know, same thing with the, with the uh, Noah movie, you know. So, you know, there's not giant rock creatures. And someone said, oh, gee, I was wondering how come I didn't see that in the Bible or something. Really? Because <laughs> a lot of people don't even read the Bible. Biblical illiteracy is at an all-time high in our country. And the truth is, a lot of you listening to me right now have never read it, so you don't even know. And uh, we need to challenge ourselves. Let's be smarter than that, and let's actually know what we believe and what our faith comes from. And just, it's not like it's that overwhelmingly heavy to actually read it for ourselves and find out what the actual story says. Uh, And you don't need people like me ranting to put it into context. But anyway, I was struck by how many people just were making comments. Oh, they didn't know. They didn't know. I think, how can you not know? But again, it's because they don't read the Bible. So I thought, you know, over the next few months, not few months, next few weeks, I don't want to spend that much time on this. 
<laughs> I, I thought, well, let's take a look at what the Bible says about Moses so you're all not ignorant. <laughs> all right? And, uh, and we can know, and I'm going to force you to see what the Bible says. So uh, that way you'll become intelligent beyond your wildest dreams. So, now this will not be an exhaustive study about Moses and everything he said or did. I don't want to spend that much time. It would take more than a few months, I guarantee you. I mean, it took us two years to go through the book of Matthew. <laughs> you know, all, everything Moses had to say was like, that fat in the Old Testament is like massive. And there's no way I want to take a look at all that. But we do want to hit the highlights and some of the key parts of it, so you can at least historically know where does this, all this come from? What does the Bible actually say happened? Now, when you look at the first parts of the Bible, particularly Genesis, there's a lot of condensed history, especially in the early chapters. It talks about the creation of the world and stuff like that. Well, a lot of people have all kinds of different opinions of what that actually meant. I don't care, you know? It's just as long as you acknowledge God did it. You know, despite my advanced age, I was not there. I don't know exactly how it happened. I just take it for face value. I think it says what it was, and it is what it says, period. Uh, you think it means something else? I don't care, again, as long as you acknowledge it was God. We just said we believe in God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth. We're here on purpose. We're here by the design of God. We're not here as the result of some gigantic galactic belch, all right? Here we all showed up, okay? Uh, I think God was behind all of this. Then you get a little bit further and, you know, you even get to the account of uh, Noah. And some people struggle with that. Well, how accurate is that? Okay, whatever. But when you get to Moses, by this time, we're talking much more recent history, still a long time ago, what, five, 6,000 years ago, 5,000, I think, uh, that Moses, saw. but that's, now we're talking historical fact. The Jews were in Egypt and they were slaves in Egypt without a doubt, for some 400 years, long time. Okay, African-Americans were slaves in America for about 100, 150 years, if, if that. We're talking 200 years, of, 400 years of this nonsense going on in Egypt. They were oppressed. Uh, it was a very difficult time for them. And then Moses comes along and he leads the people out of Egypt, goes into the Promised Land, conquering the land of Canaan, and they're fighting about it even to this day. They're still fighting over that real estate. So it was born fighting, it's still fighting. So let's take a look at actually what happened. What does the Bible say about Exodus and Moses? Now, we'll pick it up in Exodus, the first chapter, uh, in the eighth verse, but just so we can set it up here. What happens was, at the end of Genesis, we see that Joseph ends up in Egypt, and his family comes to Egypt, and the Jews all, it's a very small family at this point, you know, come to Egypt, and they settle there because of Joseph, and Joseph goes from being a slave, uh, uh, actually not a slave, a, a prisoner in, a, in the dungeon that morning, and by the end of the day, he's the second most powerful man in the world, one of the most dramatic turnarounds in a single day that the Bible tells. It's a dramatic story. I talk about it often, and I look forward, I'm sure I'll preach about it many more times, because it's just such a stunning story. You think your life is so screwed up, it can't possibly get turned around. I promise you, you could be a slave in a dungeon this morning, and by the end of the day, your life been totally turned into a new direction. It's exactly what God did for Joseph. Anyway, so the people like Pharaoh, like Joseph. The Egyptians all loved Joseph and his people. They were the ones who saved them from this horrible famine and stuff, okay? But as the years go by, Joseph is long gone dead and stuff like that. And, you know, the next Pharaohs come along. Well, eventually a Pharaoh comes, uh, and this is in verse 8. Uh, then a new king whom, to whom Joseph meant nothing. 
he doesn't care about the history of the Jewish people, comes the power in Egypt. And they says to the people, look, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they could join our enemies, fight against us. They could leave the country. Why were they concerned about that? The economic devastation would be huge to have that many people all of a sudden disappear. They were concerned about these people. So this is the king. We don't know which one it was. I'm sure historically somebody knows. I, I don't really care. But uh, this is the king who then decides to put them into slavery. So it says, so they put slave masters over them and they impressed them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Then it says, then the king of Egypt said, now you get the impression it's the same king. You know, again, this is a foreign, it's a very compressed time span they're talking here. Does that oftentimes in the Old Testament. So it's kind of hard to follow exactly what's going on. But they were, you know, slaves for hundreds of years. Now this king says to the Egyptian midwives, they're concerned now because the birth rates are so high among the Jewish people. So they want to get involved in some kind of birth control, if you will, but a very brutal kind of birth control where uh, they, he tells them, well, let's read what he says. Uh, he says, when you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, they used a stool, they didn't lay on a bed. Actually, it's, it's uh, supposed to be healthier for you. I don't know. <laughs> I don't care. Uh, uh, it says, if you see that the baby is, if the baby's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. So they were supposed to, you know, they could have easily just, you know, choked him or something. Nobody would have known whatever. The king had told them, just kill off the baby boys. You know, it's kind of like we would, you know, we shoot bucks and not doe, you know, to control the population of deer and stuff. So this was a version of population control. Was uh, when you see the babies, just, you know, off them on the spot. And if it's a girl, it can live. And so that's what the king tells them. You're supposed to do what the king tells you. But uh, it says in verse 17 that they, the midwives feared God and did not want to do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Well, the midwives answered Pharaoh, well, the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. You Egyptians are wusses, all right? These chicks, man, they pop them out just like that, all right? They're vigorous. They give birth before we can even show up. So they're just like, now, whether or not that's actually true, I don't know. Uh, you know, for, I assume they're lying to the king. Uh, but one thing's for sure, they are populating very briskly. <laughs> I mean, all over the place. So uh, because of this, uh, you know, God was kind to the midwives. Um, and, uh, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. God's blessing everybody because they keep, they keep doing the right thing in the midst of a terrible situation. Well, then Pharaoh gives this order to all the people. I don't know at what point this order came, nor do I know how long the order was in place. Again, my guess is it's just a temporary thing. There was no benefit for them to kill off every male. Uh, you'd have all kinds of problems in a situation like that. And certainly they wanted to keep these uh, slaves around. So, but whatever the time period was, however long this policy was in place, this is the new order that Pharaoh gives. Every he Hebrew boy that is born, now before he said, you know, you just kill them when they're born. Well, now he's making a much more dramatic statement. You take them and you throw the kid into the Nile River. 
but let every girl live. So we see this horrifying picture. And it's setting us up for the birth of Moses because Moses is born during this policy that was in effect where they take the boys and they would just whip them and they would just drown in the Nile River. Uh, and it's not like they all, everybody's living by the Nile River. You know, they would take them, round them up, put them in carts, whatever, and get them down to the Nile River and then just take, I'm sure, bunches of them, throw them in at one time. Horrifying thing. I mean, we're mortified by people who drown puppies. You know, they're doing this to little boys. And uh, this horrible, horrible thing that is in place. And when we read about this, we're often stunned and amazed. Oh my gosh, what a horrible, how could you do such a terrible thing? You know, and even during the Christmas story, there's a very brutal part of the Christmas story that we usually skip over because it's quite the downer. Christmas, we're trying to <laughs> be lively about things. But it's when Herod freaks out when he hears about the Christ child being born. So he orders his soldiers to go to that area, and he says, kill all the little boys, two years and younger. So these soldiers bust into the homes. Every little boy they'd see at least two years or younger, younger is one like they looked at their birth certificate. This is kind of a wild guess. They would just kill these kids. This is massive slaughter. We don't know how many little boys were killed at this time, but the Bible talks about the weeping and the wailing of the women crying as a midst of this horrible thing. And we listen to these things and we read about these things and we are mortified. How could they do such things? But as Americans, we're a very strange group of people. Uh, we're usually just mortified by things we can see and become aware of. And if we don't see it, it doesn't really bother us much. Um, you know, historically speaking, one of the great turning points against military interventionism by the Americans uh, was during the Vietnam War. And everybody in America was, you know, as we did for the, since the beginning of our foundation, just, uh, we supported our soldiers wherever they went. We were behind them until Vietnam. Why? Because that's when they started embedding photographers and cameramen with the soldiers. And suddenly now everybody's seeing death on their television screens and on the front of Life magazine, and it turned the opinion of people because now they could see it. Again, if we don't see it, we're comfortable with it. If we do see it, then we have a whole different reaction. It's, it's a little strange. Um, you know, people today, we hear this big debate about these enhanced interrogation techniques. Some call it torture. There's a big debate about that. In either way, they were pretty rough on these guys. And how these people are mortified. We're Americans. We're better than that. It shouldn't be happening. But these very same people who are against this policy are all for this drone policy. Where they blow up these guys over in Pakistan or wherever. And what people don't realize is oftentimes they blow these people up in their family settings. In other words, let's say they're having a birthday party. And they're sitting there with their kids and their grandchildren and family and friends. Drone strike, boom, they get the guy, but then they kill all these children and people. A lot of collateral damage. You don't hear much about it, but that's in fact what's happening. But as Americans, we're kind of cool with that because we don't hear about it and we don't know about it. And even the people who are against the enhanced irrigation, because we do it here on American soil, have no problem blowing people to smithereens and their whole families, which I just think is very bizarre and very inconsistent. I got to tell you, if I got a choice between you blowing me up and all my children and grandchildren, or me being waterboarded, I vote for the board, all right? But we can't handle that, but we'll blow them to smithereens. It's just, we just have this very bizarre 
sense of broken morality in our country that just at times, you think, what is the matter with us? And I'm going to speak now, and this is a real downer, and I'll try not to be a real bummer about it, but as pastors, we are encouraged to speak the truth and to advocate for that which is right and to speak up, have enough courage to speak up against that which is wrong. And uh, we do that here. It's probably one of the reasons we're not twice the size we are. Because <laughs> if I just stayed nice all the time, then we'd probably have more people. But, uh, you know, I'm just not going to do that. I have to stand before God someday, and I've got to answer, you know, what did you do about these things? And, I, gotta, and uh, I fear him more than I fear you or anybody else. Amen. But it has to do with this problem of abortion in our country. We're mortified by the idea of what tyrants have done, like these Egyptians and by Herod. And then we talk about the evils of communists and Nazis and all these people who killed millions of people. We would not tolerate things. We fought against those things as such as we should. But then at the same time, since 1973, over 55 million. 772,000 children have been snuffed out in their mother's womb in this country. And most of us flow pretty smoothly through that because we don't see it. I mean, if they were literally taking these boys and girls and throwing them into the Fox River, we'd be in an uproar about such things. But it's done in clinics and behind closed doors with supposedly clean utensils even sometimes that's not the fact but we seem to have no problem with that and it's just horrifying we do more to ourselves than any tyrant in history has ever done to its own people and it is stunning over 55 million lives you know at Christmas time we're watching our house is just a zoo with our children and grandchildren. It's like Monkeyville. And they're going everywhere, and I'm sitting with my wife, and I, I said, look at all that. I said, there'd be no them if there'd have been no us. And it's one of the joys of being a parent and a grandparent as you look out and say, none of that would exist if, it, if we hadn't been here. It's one of our greatest statements in life. It's a fabulous feeling. But then you think of 55 million and how many more millions from that don't exist anymore today because we can't be bothered with such things. Look, it is what it is. I know most of you would never choose to do such a thing, and it is the law in this country, and I understand that. And better to change people's hearts than to force things down their throats. I will say, and this isn't a partisan thing because there are Democrat pro-life people, there are Republican pro-life people, but how any Christian who takes their faith seriously, and I know they do, how those very same people, by the millions, will vote for candidates who approve of the death of 55 million unborn children is stunning to me. No question, many of you do that. No question in my mind. Stephen, Stephen's point, I've been talking about this for years, ticked off all kinds of people over there. <laughs> That's why you're not bigger than you are today, you know. Uh, it, it is what it is, but I'm not going to pull back from that. I, people say, well, I know that, but, you know, I like this candidate's economic policies, or I like their tax policies. Seriously? Because there's no way any policy on earth could ever trump this. You see, that makes you a single-issue voter. Pretty much, yeah. 
And I will never, I don't care what badge they wear, ever, ever vote for any man or woman who stands up and says they approve of this. All right, after that depressing rant, moving on. It says, so then a man of the tribe of Levi and marries a Levite woman. It's amazing their names aren't even mentioned here. These are the parents of Moses. They get married. She becomes pregnant, gives birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, I'm not sure what that means. All of us think our children are fine. It's everybody else's kids that irritate us. We like ours. Okay. He's a fine child, so she hid him for three months. Why? Because if the authorities come in, see, he's a baby boy, I'm going to go put him in with all the other baby boys, put him in a big pile, drive him off to the river, and whip them into the water. She certainly didn't want to see that happen, so she hides the boy, but when it got to the point she could no longer hide him, she gets a papyrus basket for him, coats it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile, all part of the story of Moses. Now, what's interesting, there's no evidence here that God told them to do anything. But we all believe that God's hand was here. It's all part of this incredible story. What this lady is thinking, I have no idea. She fears the child being thrown into the river, so what she does is she, instead she floats the kid in the river. I'm not sure what the wind is. He gets an extra few hours of life, maybe. I mean, the kid's going to die. There's nobody feeding it. He'll die of exposure. But yet, as a desperate effort, as a desperate mother, which many women here could do, can relate to, do anything. She just floats this little baby boy. And there he goes. And the Bible says that his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him because she wanted to see him. The whole family saw this as a heartbreaker. But she wanted to see what would happen. He gets stuck in the reeds of the water. The next verse says, Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying. <laughs> Poor baby. Of course he's crying. Stuck in a stupid basket. And she felt sorry for him. Can I keep it? Can I keep it? And she says, this is one of the Hebrew babies. So right from the beginning, unlike what we see in a lot of these stories about Moses, particularly the new one, Moses didn't really know who he was. And then later he discovers who, that's all just dramatic nonsense. It's not a big deal. It's just not as true. Moses knew who he was. We'll see that in just a minute. They knew from the get-go, knew who he was. He didn't have some big discovery later. Remind me of that movie, The Jerk, with Steve Martin. You know, poor little black boy raised up. Till later he found out he was white. What a shock, all right? So it's like Moses knew, Moses knew. He, he knew, everybody knew. He, I'm sure that he looked different than everybody else. It wasn't like a, a big shock. She knew right away who he was. It's one of these Hebrew babies. And she wants to keep it. I want it, I want it, I want it. And because she's Pharaoh's daughter, she gets what she wants, right? That's the way it works when you are part of the most powerful family in the world. So uh, now the sister runs up. The little girl says, she sees what's going, she says, because the baby's crying and she can't nurse it, you know, and so she says, should I go find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? And the, the lady says, yes, go. And so the girl went and got the baby's mom. So Pharaoh's daughter says to the mom, listen, will you take this baby and nurse him for me and I'll pay you? Well, that's a pretty great gig, right? 
She gets the baby back. She gets to hold the baby again, now has perfect permission to raise this child. She nurses this little boy, and now she's getting paid for it. <laughs> That's a great gig. But sadly, at some point, she has to turn him back in. In verse 10, it says, when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter. We don't know how old he was at this point, but at some point by this time, he's weaned. And, you know, I don't know, what is he, three years? I don't know how long they immersed him back, immersed them. I said immerse again. I got this immerse in my head. I don't know what immerse is. Nursed him. A little boy now. I'm sure her heart breaks, but it's a big win because he didn't have very many contemporaries because during the time he was born, all those little boys were killed. So he kind of stood out in this part. So it was a win, but I'm sure it broke her heart. And uh, Pharaoh's daughter takes him, and he becomes her son. So he immediately becomes the adopted grandson of the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh. He's got good status at this point. It is she who names him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. So something about the word Moses has to do with water and coming out of the water. Uh, and so this is dramatic. Again, what's interesting, again, is that there's no record that God told anybody to do anything, but clearly God's hand was in that. You know, I love sharing with people and listening to some of your stories and different stories at our different campuses. And oftentimes you'll hear people, and some of you have the story, you say, man, I, I'm surprised I'm alive today. I should have died in this. I could have died. I was in this accident. just barely missed this, you know. And, but, you know, you're here for a reason. God has us all here for a reason. There's a purpose, and we're here to fulfill this purpose. Okay, so now the very next verse, that was verse 10. Verse 11, one day after Moses had grown up, boom, 40 years gap. How do you know it's 40? Because we find out another, another part of the Bible that he's 40 when this happens now. So for 40, now this is where a lot of Hollywood and Disney, everybody make, they take all these great liberties to discuss how Moses grew up in this family. We don't know. I don't know. I don't really have major, major issues with that. What they always try to show is that he becomes real buddies with one of the other boys who's going to be the next pharaoh, and they hang out together, and they grow up together, and part of the drama's conflict is later in life. There are these two great men who had been so close. That's probably all baloney, all right? My guess, whoever was the oldest child who was in line to be the next pharaoh uh, probably wasn't buddies with, they didn't have families like we have, you know, a couple of kids, three, four kids, and then they got a few grandkids and stuff. These guys, some of them had hundreds of wives and concubines. There were people everywhere. And they had the resources to support them all, and the fact that he would have been buddies with, he could have been. I don't know. I'm just saying, I don't think it's very likely, but it doesn't really matter. You know, in the latest movie, they show Moses as a great warrior, and he's one of the generals that fights as they take on the Midianites or whoever and chops up. It's a cool that's a cool part of the movie, you know, whenever you kill people, so it's exciting. So they're having these battles and their chariots and stuff, and Moses actually saves Pharaoh's life, you know, which there's no evidence or any such thing ever happened. But this, this, so this is where everybody takes, and it's fine. They can make up whatever they want. It doesn't really matter. Uh, my guess is Moses was a very skilled with the blade. I'll show you why in just a second here. Let's take a look. So one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were. He knew they were his own people. Again, not this dramatic <gasps> moment, all right? He knew, and he knew he lived a special life because of who she was and adopted him. He got a new status. Praise God, he's a blessed kid. 
but he knew who he was. So uh, he went to watch his own people. He watched them hard at their labor. And then he saw an Egyptian beating one of his people, the Hebrews, one of his own peeps. He, these are my peeps. So he gets really mad. Why are you beating up on this guy? And he's just torqued. So the Bible says, verse 12, looking this way and that, he goes around to see if there's nobody there. Then he kills the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. So one thing we know is he's pretty swift with a knife, right? My guess is being raised in Pharaoh's thing as a man, 40 years of age, by this time he's been trained like crazy with blades and swords, whether or not he actually was in, in battles, we don't know, or general, I don't know, again, who cares? But clearly he had no problem taking on this Egyptian. Walks up to him, hey, yeah, 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 chops him to pieces and uh, buries him in the sand. So he's thinking, I got away with something. So he murders the guy. The guy is a murderer. You understand this, right? This is the man who proclaimed from the great mountain, thou shalt not kill. Well, that comes much later. At this point, he's a murderer. As we've been sharing for you for weeks, as you look in the Bible, we think these people were super holy people that floated on clouds over the ground. They were not. The Bible is replete with incredible men and women who were liars, adulterers, prostitute, murderers. Moses was a murderer. And as I just spoke briefly about the abortion, there's no way in a church our size that there aren't a lot of women here who have, listening to me by TV, whatever, who have gone down this road. Or a lot of men who've had girlfriends or wives that they forced down this road. A lot of guilt here. I just want to say to you, the good news is that we have forgiveness. If you will come to God and ask him for forgiveness, he will forgive you. Oh, my life is terrible. I can never be nothing. No, that's not true. Moses was an incredible man. He was guilty of first degree murder. There's redemption. There's healing. So we don't condemn anybody, but just because we believe in forgiveness doesn't mean that we don't acknowledge the wrong. We still have to acknowledge what's wrong. Anyway, Moses, he offs this guy. The next day, he went out and he sees two Hebrews fighting. He sees two brothers, his own guys, are fighting with each other. And he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Well, then Moses freaks. Ah! Remember, he thought nobody saw him. He's looked around, nobody's there. Hey, yeah, yeah, chop, chop, and buries the guy. Well, somebody saw him, and the word spreads pretty quickly, and they know who Moses is. It's interesting, even that the Hebrew people, they probably knew who he was, that he was living this life of luxury, despite them all being, who knows, but they resented him. All they know is he's guilty of murder, and they rat him out. And uh, it says in verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. It wasn't a personal vendetta between him and his buddy, okay? It was just, he was guilty of murder. What do you do to murderers? You kill the murderers. You find them and you kill them. So Moses freaks and he runs. And he goes to live in Midian. It says where he sat down by a well. He is now out in the middle of the backside of the desert. And in the movie, it says, nine years later, well, in point of fact, it was 40 years later. He was, his life went from great comfort and privilege, ends as a murderer, and for the next 40 years, 
He's stuck out in the desert with a bunch of goats. Ah. This is what I, next week we'll pick it up and I want to show you what his life was like. Again, in the movie it said nine years later because they wanted to keep Christian Bale looking cool. You know, but it's just a movie. It doesn't really matter. I don't care. Go see the movie. I don't really care. But uh, uh, next week we're going to pick it up and we're going to take a look at the life of Moses now. What happens to him now for the next 40 years? What, where does he get to the place where he experiences God and God tells him to go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh, let my people go? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your blessings this day, your gifts and your kindness to us, God. As we study your word, we want to become literate. We want to know what our spiritual heritage is so that we can know the truth and not be influenced by fairy tales and other people's opinions of stuff. It's fine, whatever they do, but help us to know the truth. We want to know the truth. God, we ask for your grace and your mercy in our land. We are in the midst of a people who are doing horrible things as long as they can do it very quietly and behind doors, we seem to look the other way. Lord, we are in a mess in so many ways. We ask you for a spiritual renewal in our land. For anyone who's been part of this and the guilt they carry from it, we ask you to forgive them and to cleanse them of these things and help us to be people of faith who will take the right stands in this nation concerning such things. Lord, many of us this morning are like Moses who, if we look back on our lives, shouldn't even be here. But miraculously we are because you have a purpose. You have a purpose for everybody. Help us to find out what that purpose is and to live out that purpose. And Lord, we celebrate that even people who've done really bad things like Moses himself, the one who taught us thou shalt not kill was himself guilty of murder. That God, you still not only forgive people, you redeem them, and you add value and make their lives of great purpose. We thank you for that today, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. God bless you.